We are going to be in Matthew 25 this morning, verses 31 through 46, talking about the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer the Lord, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say, answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You may be seated. Good morning. Bit of an intense verse there, huh? We, um, real quick, before we jump into the passage, I wanted to <clears throat> take a minute, uh, kind of um, expand on the building announcement a little bit. So it was a few weeks ago, I was up here and um, sharing an announcement, and we are down to 27 days until our lease expires here. Uh, moving day is right around the corner. It's coming. We're getting ready, right? That's all these work days coming. Um, less than four weeks to go. And the elders and our building team, which, guys, we have an amazing team. It's, it's been really fun. Um, we wanted to share some exciting news. We have made a decision of where we will be um, meeting short term um, and where we'll be gathering as a community. Um, as a reminder, a few weeks ago, as a building team, um, we were trying to make a decision. We had some incredible options that the Lord put in front of us, which, just stop for a minute, that's amazing that we had options. That's like a, a reason to stop and just praise the Lord right there, that we were not at the last minute scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, but the Lord gave us really good options. And so instead of trying to weigh out like the cons or the negatives, we actually had to sit down and like weigh out the opportunities and the strengths of these different options. That's amazing. God provides, right? Two of these locations involved partnering and sharing space with another local church for a season, for an initial six-month period. Um, while we as a building team and as elders can begin to look and plan for a long-term solution. A third option existed uh, with the church in transition who's looking for, to provide their facilities a, uh, for a pri primary tenant. And on Friday night, uh, our building team got together. And we discussed these options in details. We weighed out all the pros and cons. And there's a lot of, lot of things to consider. And the 10 of us that were there came 
and I believe even the members of our team that weren't there, we came to a unanimous decision, uh, which is, was awesome. It's the best way to make a decision, right? <laughs> We're all in agreement. Um, the decision is to take up a local congregation's offer for us to gather in their space uh, for the next six months. Um, and we'll be meeting in the late afternoons. The space will offer us additional classrooms resources for the kids, um, office space for myself and for our team and for um, Foster the Bay to continue to use, plus a dedicated space for our pantry to continue to operate so that we, we have access to that space throughout the week, not just Sunday mornings. Those were our minimum things that we were looking for in a space. And the, the place that we have decided on has all of that and more. It actually is, we believe, going to really facilitate some really fun things, some community things that we can do in the next season. It's got commercial kitchen, gym facilities, lots of different ways that we can utilize this facility. We all know that the last year and a half, more than a year and a half, has been one of isolation and division and contention. And uh, we really feel like in this next season to find ways for us to come together as a community, as a family, to do things together is going to be really important. And so as we were considering our options, that was a key deciding factor. Also, just the reality of the the situation, the rental climate right now is, is insane. I know you know that personally, residentially, but surprisingly, the commercial market has not dropped, which is interesting. If any, any real estate people out there, let's, let's chat, <laughs> figure out what's going on. But the facility uh, that we're looking at actually represents for us an 80% reduction in our cost for the next season. So we'll have more space, more usable space. Cost will be lower, which will then allow us, we're going to continue to keep giving, right? We'll, we'll, we'll then allow us uh, to really begin to be intentional with our savings and our planning um, to move forward into a long-term facility, long-term home. It's a little bit like the analogy we're using is, you know, like a young family. Sometimes you move in with your parents for a season. You uh, save some money, you prep, you get things in order so you can buy a home. <laughs> I'm not saying we're going to buy. I'm just saying that that's sort of how we're approaching this season. Um... This week, we're going to finalize Elise and the move details. We're going to be working on all those details. You will see more information to come. Please sign up for our, our move prep days. I, out of respect for this other congregation, they have not fully told their people yet, so we're not going to announce where it's going to be this morning. Soon enough, we'll let you know. But, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's really exciting. I, I hope you hear... This is a really good thing. We are really excited about this transition, and the Lord is going to use it, um, and it's going to be really good. Um, coincidentally, the next section we're moving into in, in the Apostles' Creed focuses on the church, right? Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, which falls right at the time of our move. We're actually going to add a week into that. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks really focusing on the church as we plan this transition. Um, as Katie mentioned, we do need your help. We do need everybody um, to contribute to this move. This is a family, family move. And so if, if everybody can contribute, everybody can be involved, it will make um, the work a lot easier on the rest of us. <laughs> instead of it all falling on a few of us. Look on Church Center. There's, there's events already created for each of those days. Um, and it's, it's, there's six-hour time blocks, but you can kind of just schedule yourself to come in for some of it, all of it, part of it, however it works for you. 
Um, so lots of details, lots of work, lots of stuff coming up, moving parts, lots of things that will be happening. This space, actually, uh, there's another church going to come into this space. It's going to really suit their needs. I met with them this week, and uh, they've just been in a very uh, tr transitory situation. The building that, or the place they were meeting before during COVID was just never an option, literally never an option. Um, so they're excited to be here. And we will be, hopefully, I mean, we're going to try to see how much, if they need any of this, these things the, that's actually attached here, furniture, these chairs. If that's the case, that will make our moving a lot lighter. We won't have to store a bunch of stuff. Amen? <laughs> so let's, um, I just want to pray, and I want to invite you and ask you guys to continue to be praying for us as a building team. Their job's not over, by the way. Now that we've settled on a place to move, there's the transition, but then really, right away, we're going to begin to thinking long-term and what our next season's going to look like. So be praying for us as elders and as the building team. Um, let's pray real quick, and then we'll open up the scriptures. Father, we just thank you that you are so kind to us, that you are the good shepherd, that you lead us and guide us, that we can trust you, and that in this next season that you were kind to offer us, even to present us with options, with good options, options that will help fuel what you want to do in this community. God, I just thank you for all that you've done in this building, all that you've done in the hearts of the people that are gathered here this morning. And God, we just, we are believing expectantly for what you are going to continue to do amongst this family. God, we ask that you would have your way, that you would open doors and close doors. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The Apostles' Creed. <laughs> like transition here a little bit. Uh, our statement this morning from the Apostles' Creed is different than the rest that we've looked at so far. Until now, every statement in the Creed has been past or present tense. Think about it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That, that's happened. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended. These are all past actions that have happened to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Which, by the way, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to Brent's teaching on the ascension and session. It's amazing. It's one of those things that we don't talk about very often, we don't think about, but it's really important. And our, our section this morning is different. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is different than the past statements. With this statement, we're not talking about something that has happened in history or even something that is currently happening, like his session at the right hand of the Father. What we are saying is that we believe in something that will happen in the future. Remember what the creed is, and we've been saying the creed, the d dictionary definition of a creed is this. It's a set of beliefs or aims which guides someone's actions. That's what the creed is. This is a set of beliefs that should guide the way we live. So we come to this phrase this morning, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. That belief is something that has yet to happen, but it should guide our beliefs and our actions now. 
So this morning, I wanna, we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to tell us about the second coming of Christ and about judgment. Fun things, right? The hope of Jesus' return was a key focus in the early church. There are over 300 references to the return of Christ in the New Testament. Over 300. That's one and out of every 13 verses touches this topic. It was very important. For some reason, I mean, I have an idea of why, but for some reason, though, it's not something we think about or talk about often. I mean, it's, it's in our doctrinal statements. You can go to our website. We have a statement on it. You can pretty much go to any church's website. They're going to have a statement about it. It's taken a major theme in Christian uh, fiction, in my opinion, possibly creating part of the problem. A few decades ago, this was a huge theme. It was very popular, it was a big deal. I think there's several reasons why we don't put, put much focus on it, but for the early church, this was the bedrock of what they believed. It was the bedrock of hope that everything was built on. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what goes on in the next season of your life, whatever happens, we have confidence, we believe that he, Jesus, will come again and that he will judge the living and the dead. When we recite this creed every week, we're declaring that we believe that and that we will live in light of the fact that Jesus will come again. He will put it all to right, as N.T. Wright says. He will rule and reign on this earth. Any portrayal of Jesus that doesn't include this is just it's flat out wrong. Any picture in your mind that you have of Jesus as like a passive, absent figure is wrong. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Not only is he coming again, he's not coming in the same way. He's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's not coming to go to the cross again. This time he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus' nature is multifaceted. His identity is complicated. He is, he was, that baby that was born that we celebrate. He is that great teacher. He is the caring shepherd of your soul. He's also our great high priest who forever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He is our atoning sacrifice, the slain lamb. He is the meek friend who sticks closer than a brother. But he is also a victorious king. He is the great judge. He is the one spoken of in Psalm 2. I'm going to read this, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Messiah, Jesus. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Whew. That's also Jesus. It's a bit of a contrast to the meek, mild, loving, caring Jesus that we see, but it's equally Jesus. And it's important that we don't have an anemic picture of Jesus. Both are true, equally, and in, in tension with each other, held together. He is coming to receive his inheritance. But even our understanding of what it means that he is coming as a judge needs to be brought into submission to the scriptures. What does that even mean? Jesus is a judge. For some of us, that concept of him judging is terrifying. It brings about an idea of this cosmic being coming to determine our punishment for all the wrong things that we've done in our lives. Guys, that's, that's not the story here. For most of us, we picture Jesus in this elevated seat in a black robe determining what we have to pay for our traffic ticket or something, right? That's the picture that comes into our mind, determining the punishment for a criminal. That picture of a judge or even the Supreme Court determining policy, interpreting law, it's only so helpful. It's only part of the picture. Jesus is not only deciding that the policy has been determined, long ago. He's not deciding your constitutional rights when he comes to judge. He's separating sheep and goats. The biblical word for judge, actually, it's, it's tied to like adjust. Justice, adjust. The idea is to put things in their rightful place. This is what Jesus is coming back to do. He is coming to put things right, to separate the wheat from the weeds and the sheep from the goats, those who are his disciples from those who are not. In the fourth century, this writer, Gregory, uh, had this statement I read this week, and it, it stood out to me. I wanted to read it. It should be on the screens. The divine judgment does not primarily bring punishment of sinners. It operates only by separating good from evil and pulling the soul towards communion and blessedness. It is the tearing apart of what has grown together which brings pain to those who are being pulled. Our text this morning we read in Matthew 25 it comes at the end of a long section, a long discourse that we call the Olivet Discourse. There's five different speeches in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the last one. And the passage that we read this morning is that towards the tail end, Jesus is closing out his ministry, the last of his five big sermons, so to speak. He's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen when he leaves for his departure. And we need to feel this. We need to think this through. We need to feel the weight of this. There is coming a day. Matthew 24, 24 and 25 are this Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 30 says, There is coming a day when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it's our Lord, will come on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with the loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from every end of heaven and the other. Matthew 24, all the way through the end of Matthew 25, we see Jesus over and over and over again telling stories, trying to help us as his disciples to understand what's about to happen and what's going to happen in the future. And ultimately, how we should live now in light of that reality. 
a belief that should inform our actions. Before he died, before he rose from the grave, he prepared his disciples. And this is how he did it. This is the bedrock of biblical Christianity, that one day Jesus will return. Matthew 24, 36. Let's read this real quick. Twenty-four, thirty-six through 42. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field and one will be taken and one will left. One left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one, will le- one, will be- one left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. We don't know. There are five things that I'm going to highlight here that we do know. Five things. We do know that Jesus' delay will be long. It's been 2,000 plus years. His return will be sudden. His judgment will be irreversible. Our hearts will be exposed fully. And his judgments may be surprising. We're going to walk through those real quick. I'm going to try to go fast. We know that his delay will be long. Amazingly, Jesus says in this passage that he doesn't even know the day or the time. Only the Father. This is an example, I believe, of Jesus, how he, in his humanity, restrains his deity, humbly accepting limitations. His omniscience as a man, he's, he's restraining that. Only the Father knows. The point there is if anybody tells you <laughs> they've figured out the day, or they write a book, or they're having seminars, they're probably wrong. This is a great reminder for us, right? Jesus is saying all over these two chapters that there will be a delay. Real quick, let's look at a few of these stories. Matthew 25, 5. Jesus describes a bridegroom that's delayed in his coming. Matthew 25, 19. He describes a long time before the master comes to his servants. Chapter 24, he told us of tribulations and persecutions and and, um, opposition that will come to his disciples and that the gospel will will be proclaimed to all the nations. That all implies time. And it might seem particularly long to us. I mean, we're, we're... removed from this now a couple thousand years. But he is not in a hurry. He's not hasty in his coming. But his return will be sudden. That's the second one. It will be sudden. He refers to the days of Noah when people were eating and drinking and marrying, going about their day-to-day lives and everything that they would normally do and then out of nowhere, this flood comes and they were swept away. That's how it's going to be, Jesus says. People eating lunch, enjoying friends and company, going through their daily routines and suddenly to their surprise, Christ will return. The point here, don't put your hope in your job and your house, and your possessions, and the things that you have. None of that matters.
Jesus' return will be sudden. And his judgment, the third one, will be irreversible. It's on a normal, routine, everyday type day that Jesus will return, and he will return as judge of your life and of the world. And when he makes a judgment, it's irreversible. Every story that Jesus tells in these two chapters drives this point home. Servants who are not ready when their master returns and are cast out into darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bridesmaids who are locked out from the marriage feast. The door is shut, never ever to be opened for them. People cast into everlasting punishment. These are the, that's the type of language Jesus is using in these two chapters. There's absolutely no hint here, and I don't think anywhere else in the teaching of Scripture, of a second chance, so to speak. You guys okay? Fourth thing, our hearts will be exposed. On that day, the true nature of who we are will be laid bare before the great judge. It will all come to light. Nothing will be hidden. Everything will be revealed. I'm not, I'm not going to go too much into that. His judgments, the fifth thing here, his judgments may be surprising. And this is, I think, what stands out to us in our passage here. In every story, the people are surprised when the master casts them out or turns aside from them. Every story in these two chapters. I think it goes back to what Jesus said at the conclusion of his first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. At the conclusion there in Matthew 7, Jesus says, On that day many will come to me, many will come to me, and will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We must be prepared. So, in light of the fact that his delay will be long. His return will be sudden. His judgment's irreversible. Our hearts will be exposed. And I think his judgments may be surprising. There is actually, there's, there's a response required from us. I think that's the point of our passage and of, of these whole two chapters. The point here of this line that we recite in the Apostles' Creed is that there is a response required of us. There is a how then shall we live. We must be prepared for his coming. Let's look specifically at our passage real quick this morning. This passage can be kind of confusing. Many people read this passage and what they get out of it is essentially whatever you do something good to somebody of low status, it's the same as doing it to Jesus. So let's go do good social things. I think that's how a lot of times this passage is read. And there's truth to that. Like, don't hear me saying that's not true. There's truth to that. Jesus lived that way. That's how Jesus operated in his earthly ministry. But I think the point of this passage is slightly different. The key here, I think, comes in verse 40 when Jesus says, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Most scholars would actually say that the point of this passage is that Jesus is identifying himself with his disciples. My brothers. He's identifying himself with those who have trusted in him. And we have to remember the context of this. Jesus is closing out. He just, Matthew 24 is a lot of like coming persecution and, and testing and trials and hard times. That's what is in front of the church. 
And Jesus is saying, when you're going through all that, when you care for each other in the context of all that, that's when you look like me. When society rejects us or, or persecutes us, I'm not saying we're persecuted, but this will be very important. We're on our way there, guys. It's no longer socially advantageous for us to, to be a Christian and say that we believe the teachings of this book. There is now a stigma associated with being a follower of Jesus. This is one example, there's others in the New Testament where Jesus identifies himself specifically with believers. Remember when Paul or Saul is blinded on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, you are going around, you're persecuting Christians, and in doing so, you're persecuting me. We're his body. Essentially, what, what Jesus is saying here is if you mess with them, you're messing with me. He's identifying with us. It's the same picture here. You serve them. You care for each other. You're caring for him. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't help people who aren't Christians. All over Scripture, we're encouraged to care for the poor and needy, to take care of the vulnerable and the weak, we must do that because that's the way Jesus lived. That's our example. But this passage specifically, I feel, is saying, are we caring for each other? That's how we show that we're ready for his return. Now we have to avoid another misunderstanding from this passage. We could also read this passage as works righteousness. If we do these things, then we'll be saved. Then he'll look at us and say, all right, you're a sheep because you did all these good things. I don't think that's quite how it works. Let's talk about this passage. He, he comes, the Son of Man comes, and he shepherd, as a shepherd, right? And he separates the sheep from the goats. This is a common practice uh, in that day for shepherds that they would, during the day, they would graze their sheep and goats together in one herd. And then as evening would come, they would separate the goats from the sheep because the goats can't take the cold. And so they would separate them out, take them to a warmer place because the sheep were a little bit more hardy. We actually, we have four goats, personally, at home. They're fun. So it's interesting, like, this passage, like, I think of goats, and I think of these cute little things, and Jesus is throwing them into <laughs> lake of fire here. But um, goats are fun. But here's what, what I'm learning about goats. <laughs> they, they're, they're rascals. These guys, sheep and goats, they're not easy to herd, necessarily, they have a mind of their own. They do their own thing. I was watching the kids yesterday chase them around the property. It's kind of funny. So he takes the sheep and he puts them on his right. And he takes the goats and he puts them on his left. All this language is really important. His right side side of honor, side of power. It's important. And what, when you think of sheep, when you think of a lamb, what do you think of? Sacrifice. Sacrificial lamb. Jesus. Sheep. It's very intentional, I think, that those at his right are like the sacrificial lamb. They are the ones who have practiced the way of Jesus, who is our ultimate Passover lamb. They've learned to walk in the way. 
of Jesus. These sheep who are welcomed into his kingdom, though, even they are surprised at what Jesus says. They're not surprised at the way they're divided. I think we think that typically. We, they're not like saying, um, Jesus, the goats aren't saying like, I've actually got some fluff to me. <laughs> I think I belong over there, right? They're not, there's no debate in how he divides them. He judges rightly sheep among goat. But they are surprised at this criteria that Jesus uses. When did we do these things for you? When? Clearly, these acts of service that they were doing, they're giving away of their food and clothing, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick and the imprisoned. They weren't doing these things in order to like get to heaven or get some brownie points or some social cred and some, this is not virtue signaling. They were shocked to hear that this had anything to do with what was about to happen. It was just their way of life, just how they did their everyday life. You serve each other. We serve believers. We serve the least of these, the weak and the vulnerable that God puts around you. You serve not because you want to earn your way in heaven or get some brownie points, but because you have received the grace of God and you've been changed and you are being changed more and more into his image and his likeness. You begin to smell, look, and act like Jesus, like a sheep, like a lamb. I was just at a conference. I was just this thinking about this. Just at a conference this last week and I came home, hanging out with hanging out with some guys, hanging out with Char for a little bit, driving up with Matt, and I got home and Naomi said, You smell like Char. <laughs> it might have been Matt actually, but uh you know, sandalwood or whatever it is. But um that's what happens when you're with Jesus. He rubs off on you. You smell like him. You act like him. You pick up his behaviors. You begin to do the things that he does. And that's how much do you look like him. That's the determining factor here. How much has our hearts been transformed in his image? That's the, de the deciding factor of sheep and goats. Do we look like Jesus? Do we smell like Jesus? Do we act like Jesus? Do we walk in his ways? Do we care for each other? not earning our way. We serve because Jesus has changed our hearts. Because we've spent time with him. We look like him. This goes back to John 13. Jesus told his disciples, he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 15, love one another as I have loved you. First John, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, does not know God because God is love. Over and over, first John is full of this. This one is huge, guys, and Particularly for us, we're coming out of a season, like I mentioned earlier, of contention and division and politics and masks and all the things. We can do better, guys, at displaying a community that loves one another and looks like Jesus, smells like Jesus, acts like Jesus, that, that uh, colony of heaven 
the fruit of a heart that has been changed by Christ. This is the fundamental way. This is how Jesus is preparing his disciples for his coming. This is how we practice the way of Jesus, by loving each other, caring for each other, serving each other, living intentionally in the context of community even when it's hard and we don't necessarily enjoy it all the time. Knowing the whole time that this is forming in us his image. Okay. To close this out, I want to remind us who it is that is coming as this judge. We will all, this is, this is the confession that we make, we will stand before this judgment seat. We will all be laid bare before him. But who is he? When we stand before him, it will not be a cruel, emotionally absent, distant deity that we see. It will be him. It will be our lamb. The one that who, for our sake, was born, suffered, was crucified, died, and buried, who rose from the third day, who has been forever making intercession on our behalf. It will be him that we stand before. When we look at that throne of judgment, we will not see an alien, harsh God. We will see the face of our loving Jesus. Amen? He'll be God fully, but he will be one of us, acquainted with who you are and with your weakness. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is our confession. And our job is not to get caught up in the details or to try to predict or plan or any of that stuff. But we are called to be prepared and to live in light of that reality. That's what the creed is, remember. It's a set of beliefs that informs our actions. This week I was thinking about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote 70 resolutions. There's some of them up here. 70 resolutions that he would read weekly. This was sort of his rule of life. Anybody read these? I highly recommend, go look it up. Jonathan Edwards resolutions. He would read these weekly to evaluate his life and how he was keeping them. These are some of his resolutions. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were my last hour of life. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would, it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Resolved to inquire every night as I am going to bed, wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself, also at the end of every week, month, and year. What a good practice. Resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could, possi I could possibly in any respect have done better. Resolved, I will act as I think I shall, I will act so as I think I shall judge would I have been best and most prudent when I come to the future world. Resolved, I, to endeavor to my utmost to act as I, can, as I can think I should do if I have already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments. You should go read them, Jonathan Edwards. How would we live, this is the question, this is our, our, this week, how would we live differently today if we knew that Jesus was coming back tonight? We would live differently. 
Ultimately, the question is, will we be found walking in obedience with him when he returns, or will we be found wandering in disobedience? Will we be found on our knees praying for revival and for his return and for our lost neighbors? Or will we be found, will we, will we be found loving our neighbors or ignoring our neighbors? Will we be found passionately devoted to our spouse or practically neglecting them? Will we be found hating sin, sin or holding on to it, hiding it? What are we doing during our week that would not make sense, as Jonathan Edwards said, if this was our last hour? Just something to think about. This is a hopeful thing. When Jesus comes to judge, this is a good thing for us who are found in his fold. There's nothing to be scared about. Nothing to be overly preoccupied about, but we should live in light of it. Amen? Let's pray and the worship team come back up. Father, we thank you that you are so, so good. You are kind and you are patient. God, I pray that you would help us to be aware of what you're doing. You would help us to be aware of your leading and your prompting, that we would think, act, and respond like Jesus. God, help us to, to prioritize you, to spend time with you, to, to learn to live and act the way you did. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.